magnesium. It seems every second runner, cyclist, or triathlete you meet is taking or talking about magnesium. Ask them why, and you often get some vague kind of answer for recovery, for muscle function, or sometimes something a little bit more specific like to prevent cramping. But when you delve into the sports nutrition guidelines, there's no mention of magnesium in there at all, like literally nothing. So are athletes a step ahead of the science here, or have they been duped by the lure of a supplement that uses terms like nervous system and muscle function, these terms taken from a symptom list of clinical magnesium deficiency? In today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Sophie Killer, a sports nutritionist and researcher who did some of the very few studies of magnesium in athletes during her time working with UK athletics. We'll look at what magnesium does in the body, how to know if you're deficient in magnesium, whether deficiency is common in athletes, whether supplements can improve performance or reduce cramping, the benefits and risks of magnesium supplementation, and whether we should think about magnesium as a daily supplement, something like iron, or more something that needs to be specifically replaced during exercise like sodium or carbohydrate. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each episode, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask, sort of stuff that people are talking about out on their run or ride, in the coffee shop afterwards or jumping online to find answers for. So we'll take that question and break it down, inviting a guest expert or athlete to add their unique perspective in our B episode as well. But today it is episode 58, What's the Deal with Magnesium? with our special guest, Dr. Sophie Killer. But before we get to Sophie, how are you going, Steph? Hopefully not as crook as I've been the last week. Thankfully, fingers crossed, I've been pretty healthy. So yeah, fighting that away, that saying I don't have kids, so you are at increased risk. I've just got now, I do though now have two kids like you, but they are little four-legged friends. I was going to say they're a bit more hairier than my kids. Yeah, so we've got a, I don't know, eight to ten-week-old. We just got actually yesterday morning so yeah she is keeping us on our toes yeah and we'll have have two lots of barking to have to try and edit out a podcast in the future (laughs) i thought you needed more work out so yeah (laughs) (laughs) and um what about yourself obviously yeah you haven't been too well the last week or so yeah yeah my blessed less hairy children brought something home from school (laughs) thankfully not COVID this time but yeah if my voice sounds a bit husky today, it, it definitely is. <laughs> definitely still feeling it. But yeah, hopefully back in the office next week and back to business as usual for uh, a study we've got coming up, which we'll talk about in a sec. So yeah, I guess getting to updates and announcements. So we have some study recruitment calls here. So Alan's study, it's for runners in Melbourne. And it's about a specific beverage formulation for pre and post exercise hydration. If you are interested, you need to be able to attend the Monash Uni Lab on weekdays for the trial. You also need to be able to run two to three hours at a moderate intensity. So, what we mean by that is 60% of your VO2 max, or you might like to think of it as 75% of your heart rate max, which is typically for a lot of the runners that come to us about 8 to 10 kilometres an hour. We will post more about this study on social media, so please look out for it there if you are potentially interested. And it also, there is another study by one of our listeners and supporters and dietitian, sports dietitian Erin Kolbach, And she's looking for runners aged 35 and older in Adelaide. A study on diet and injury risk, and this is run at the University of South Australia, who we are fans of because we know South Australia, particularly Adelaide, is one of the best places that you can live. 
So, <laughs> so so great that you moved away from there, Steph. I know, I know. I'm torn. I go between the two. <laughs> and just a reminder that if you are enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We really do appreciate it. And those that leave a review on Apple Podcasts will go into a draw, draw to win a copy of our ebook when it's published. And just a reminder that if you do have a question that you'd like answered on the podcast, or maybe you've even got a friend that's been nagging you about a particular question and you'd prefer us to uh, answer it for you, you can find us on social media at The Long Munch. So that's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. But let's get into our episode hour. So we're up to what episode? Yeah, episode 58 today, What's the Deal with Magnesium? And our special guest is Dr. Sophie Killer. So Sophie is a sports nutritionist who works in elite sport in the UK. Uh, She's worked with the Olympic basketball team there in the run-up to the London Olympics. Uh, She's also worked in the English Premier League with a bunch of different teams, West Brom, Crystal Palace. Uh, She was the head of performance nutrition at Tottenham Hotspur for a period of time as well. But throughout the last sort of five to ten years, her main role was with the English Institute of Sport as the head of performance nutrition to what was then British Athletics, now known as UK Athletics. So Sophie's also a researcher. She completed her PhD at Loughborough University in 2014, and she's combined those two roles as a practitioner and a researcher to look at a series of studies that try and understand the relevance, or not potentially, of magnesium in track and field athletes with UK Athletics. So these are some of the very few studies that have ever been done on magnesium in high level, in this case, elite level athletes. And these includes both able-bodied and para-athletes. And currently Sophie is on maternity leave. We actually reached out to Sophie, I'm going to say almost two years ago now, Steph. She's had two kids. Um, Well, one kid was young then, um, now a bit older, and then she's on mat leave again this time. So we've sort of chased her for a little while to get on the podcast, but she has been busy, which is absolutely fair enough. But yes, she's doing a small amount of consulting work these days um, with Red Bull and their athletes uh, and with another startup in the UK that looks at wearable devices. But this work around magnesium has got nothing to do with the the startup or anything like that. So there's, there's no conflicts of interest there. So yeah, we've been hoping to do this one, as I said, for quite a while now. It's a really interesting topic. I think it's one that a lot of people talk about, but no one knows that much about. It's a bit of a a mystery really. So hopefully we can speak to someone who can sort of peel the curtain back a little bit and try and investigate what's going on with magnesium and athletes. Awesome. Let's get stuck into it. Yep. Let's do it. Sophie Killer, welcome to the Long Munch. Have we been waiting for you? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> There's welcome. good reason, Steph. Oh, let's no, hope totally. it's worth the wait. <laughs> yeah, no, we are very, we are very excited. We are very excited. So, a large part of your work is working with high performance athletes and has particularly focused in track and field athletes, I believe. So what got you interested in working with these athletes in particular? Oh, that's a great question. I guess it was kind of partly opportunity, really, when the role came along and I saw it advertised. I remember reading the job description and I just got goosebumps and I was so excited and I knew I had to get that job. And it wasn't an easy process. I think it took about three months and five interviews. But yeah, it was an absolute dream job. And I think it's really the diversity the amazing thing is that you're working in one sport, so you're not spread too thinly across lots of different sports, which is quite common, at least in the UK, for practitioners. So I was embedded in one sport full time, which was great. But then I had this huge diversity. I had the male and the females. And then obviously track and field couldn't really have any more sports within it, you know, everything from marathoners to throwing to, well, the whole lot. And then obviously I, w- I was looking after the Olympic and Paralympic team um, and the Paralympic discipline obviously adds a huge extra amount of diversity. So, you know, one day I'd be working on a hypertrophic program with a thrower and the next, you know, GI discomfort in a wheelchair racer or a menorrhea in a female marathon runner. So it was just the most amazing and most interesting job. And I learned so much. So, yeah, I think it's going to take quite a lot to top a job like that in the future. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
So I guess we're wanting to get you on because we know you've done some research in magnesium and we know that magnesium supplements pretty much everywhere. I don't think you can work in sports nutrition and not have had at least one athlete ask you about whether they should take magnesium supplements. But I guess before we kind of dive into that, let's get a bit of an overview of the importance of this mineral in our diet first. So what are the main functions of magnesium in our body? Well, magnesium is involved in hundreds of reactions that are happening in the body. So it's, it's definitely essential, but specifically from an, uh, an athlete perspective, then it's involved in energy metabolism, so glucose metabolism, it's involved in immunity, redox balance, so it help, helps you um, manage the stress caused by exercise. What's quite interesting, and we'll come onto that a bit later, is its involvement in pain modulation. And that kind of ties in with some of the interesting findings we found from our big magnesium study. We know it's linked closely with vitamin D metabolism, so therefore bone health. So they're probably some of the most important ones from an athlete perspective and obviously muscle function too, being involved in the process of muscle contraction. So we know magnesium is very important. But what's really interesting is, like you mentioned about food, magnesium is prevalent in so many sources of food. It's, it's, it would be impossible not to eat magnesium. And even vegan athletes are still like, going to be exposed to huge amounts of magnesium. So it really is fascinating why we should see deficiency really in anybody, let alone in, in athlete populations, when it's prevalent in everything from green leafy veg to pulses to dairy to um, fish, you know, it, it's everywhere. So it's, it's really interesting why, why, we should have seeing, why we should be seeing deficiency. Mm, yep. And I guess some minerals are regulated in the body by controlling how much is absorbed from food, for example, iron, whilst others are regulated through the kidneys, getting rid of the excess in urine. So examples of that would be sodium and potassium. What's the case with magnesium? How does our body kind of manage the amount of magnesium to try and prevent, I guess, a deficiency or a toxicity? Yeah, similar to sodium, so re renal. So it's the kidneys that are managing magnesium. And yeah, unless you have renal failure or renal dysfunction, then it's unlikely that you would um, have any toxic levels of magnesium. That's That would be really quite unusual that it would be allowed to accumulate. We lose magnesium through sweat, through urine. So yeah, the, the body's pretty good at handling that. Interesting question about why we would become deficient. So only about 1% stored in the blood, about 50% stored in the bones, and then the rest of it's kind of in our muscles and our organs. So it's circulating throughout the body and is handled by the kidneys. Yeah, yeah. And is it a similar case to calcium where, you know, the blood level has to be within a very tight margin? And so if that's starting to fall, because for whatever reason, we haven't had much magnesium coming in through food, are we going to start to take some of that out of the bones to try and keep that blood level fairly stable in the same way that we would with calcium? That's a really interesting question. I, I don't know, but yes, that would be a sound theory and perhaps within the working muscle as well. The role of the circulating magnesium in the blood is probably less understood than how it would be contributing to all the metabolic functions within bone and within muscle and, and the mm. other vital organs. But the fact that it's in such low concentration in the blood is does make it quite tricky to measure it and to get a really true insight. Obviously, we're not going to take bone biopsies to see how much magnesium an athlete has stored. For example, plasma magnesium is very transient um, and is impacted by diet and by exercise. So we definitely wouldn't recommend plasma or cerium magnesium um, sampling as a way of determining magnesium status it needs to be measured through red cell magnesium or urethrocyte magnesium which is thought to be much more stable mm -hmm. so it's a little bit complicated to analyze it and i think that's probably one of the reasons that we find that practitioners don't analyze magnesium because if or if they were to measure plasma which would be the easiest thing to measure that result would be pretty uninsightful mm. Mm. okay yep 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 and so is magnesium deficiency common in the general population? Well, I've come across a study that's, that found it to be at 40%, which seems very high. This is a study mm. back from 2014 in a student population. It's just a kind of mm. typical university study. So it was in young adolescents. So they found that to be at 40%, more widely across a population I'm not sure but it does seem to be in existence you know there are there are going to be people that have magnesium deficiency and are unaware of it and the the study that we published that we'll be talking about is really the first study that's looked at on that scale at um, magnesium deficiency in elite athletes yep yep 
And so why do you think there is so much interest in magnesium from athletes? Is it based on science, guidelines, anecdote, hearsay, good supplement marketing? Yeah. I don't know. I don't think it's based on good science because I don't think there's enough science out there to really inform athletes about the importance of magnesium. I think it's really under-researched. I kind of like to compare it a little bit to vitamin D, thinking it's probably 10, 15 years behind how what we know about vitamin D. So I'm really hopeful that there will be more research to be done. Um, obviously, supplements are widely available and a lots, of su- lots of supplements do contain magnesium. You only really need one athlete to say that it helps them sleep to get every other athlete on the planet to try it Mm. or, you know, for whatever reason. We do know that if you are magnesium deficient and you correct it, that you will have a performance improvement from that. So if it's if an athlete was deficient and didn't know and supplemented, it's possible that they would have felt better from taking it. And therefore, again, you only need that athlete to share that information with another athlete for them to think it's worth a try. But if you are sufficient, it's very unlikely it's going to have an additive performance enhancing effect. It's more just, you know, replacement of what was missing has been shown to improve things like counter movement, jump, muscle strength, bench press, those kind of things. So muscle function, really, if you're deficient and correct that, then it will enhance performance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We were talking off air before we started this that you know, certainly here in Australia, I think magnesium supplementation in athletes is very common. And I think you've probably seen this as well, Steph, where, you know, you go through and, and ask an athlete, you know, what supplements do they take when you first work with someone? And the amount of people that are taking magnesium is just unbelievable. Certainly here in Australia, it might, it might be different elsewhere. But, you know, when you ask people or, or they just say, oh, I take it for this, you know, the, the responses are often really, I find Steph quite vague, like they'll be like, oh, it's to help recovery. But they don't really say what that means or <laughs> it's to help cramping. cramping. And, and so yeah. I think some of that sometimes is probably coming back, as you said, Steph, supplement marketing where, you know, the supplement marketing people are probably flicking through the list of deficiencies of different nutrients and going, oh, muscle function, here we go, and then going, okay, well, now we can link magnesium to preventing problems with muscle function, quote, unquote. That goes into their marketing and then all of a sudden people are taking it because it it's important for muscle function and I need it. Do you get that sense in the UK as well, Sophie, that, that that's kind of conversations that go on or the, the sort of the thought process that you see in athletes? I, I think possibly less so than from mm-hmm. what you're saying. Magnesium is a common supplement, but I don't think it's the first supplement that an athlete would usually say to me. To be honest, magnesium was kind of under my radar really until I started in track and field. So prior to that, I'd worked with the Olympic basketball team. I'd done a couple of seasons in Premier League football and worked on the side with triathletes and ultra runners and cyclists and it hadn't really come up in conversation and when I'd been doing blood screening before it wasn't really one that I'd prioritized it was really starting when I started athletics and I revised the blood screening process to include that and then I started to see time after time so you know four or five times a year when I was analyzing bloods I was seeing deficiency that it really started to spark my interest and started this research journey that I've been on with these papers that I published rather than actually persistently athletes talking about magnesium so possibly a little bit different over here but yeah definitely an interesting one and if you actually really dig into the literature there isn't much I mean there's always Uh well there is nothing to suggest that magnesium is going to cure cramping theoretically yes magnesium is going to play a role in muscle function muscle Mm -hmm. metabolism glucose metabolism and all of these things are going to you know start to I suppose work less optimally when we're becoming fatigued and possibly lead to cramping and if magnesium has a small role there then maybe it helps but really there's there's no research to support that um mm, at the moment yep. <laughs> yeah is that is that what i describe steph is that pretty much what you see as well when you talk to athletes yeah yeah they yeah they take magnesium yeah and typically i think they would say it's for cramping but yeah otherwise they just take it because i think marketing and or other athletes are taking it Mm. Yep, and, and I wonder I, whether the other difference too is that probably a lot of the athletes that we're referring to at the moment, Steph, are maybe the more the recreational athletes mm. rather than like professional and elite athletes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yep, yep, yeah. Mm. I think out of all of the all of the supplements that an athlete might just kind of blindly take, it's not too high risk, so that doesn't yeah. really scare me. I think if it was iron or you know zinc or something that really would start to accumulate and potentially become toxic, then that would be really really concerning. But I kind of feel that if an athlete really thinks that magnesium is helping them, we don't have the evidence to say that that's not the case. And it's very unlikely to do any harm. So, yeah, in that that regard, kind of crack on for now, I would say, until we know a bit more. (laughs) Yeah. 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 
Yeah. Cool. So do athletes lose more magnesium compared to the sedentary healthy population? Well, this is one of the things we first started looking at. So the first study we did, it was a collaboration between British Athletics and the University of Surrey. And I just wanted to do a bit of a proof of concept to see if what I was seeing was true, that we did have quite a high level of deficiency. So we just did, we picked it and we got a general population of students from Surrey University and then I got um, a bunch of Olympic and Paralympic athletes and we ran some blood tests um, and we did a food frequency questionnaire and also a dietary intake but like a three-day three-day weighed diet diary and we, we didn't do that with the Olympians because they're much less willing <laughs> mm-hmm. but they could fill in a quick food frequency so part of the study was actually validating a food frequency questionnaire for magnesium alongside the weighed intakes that the sedentary population did and what we found was that there was the magnesium levels were sufficiently significantly lower in the in the athlete population than non-athletes. So we that study wasn't really exploring why it was just is this the case? Is is what we're seeing kind of true? So we did find that it was lower in athletes, and then that further sparked my interest. And the question then is why? So the next study we did again, this was a, a collaboration with Surrey University. We wanted to look at where magnesium was going. So we had ex- athletes exercising, triple running. I think it was like seventy percent for an hour. We had non-athlete population doing that and then we had sweat patches urine analysis and blood analysis and then in my elite athletes in the olympic and paralympic athletes i just did i let them do let them (laughs) they were doing their own training um, and i just put sweat patches on did the bloods and did the urine but didn't interfere with the kind of session so it wasn't controlled in that regard you know that they were doing Mm -hmm. treadmill running but really that was the only way that i could start to gather some decent information and what we found was obviously magnesium is lost in the sweat and in the urine there was a trend for higher losses of magnesium in the athletes sweat than the non-athletes but again they weren't doing the same types of exercise the populations were the size was quite small I think I had 15 elite athletes and probably 20 non-athletes but there was a suggestion that maybe the magnesium losses were higher maybe the muscle contraction forces were greater or who knows? But the most imp- interesting thing in that study that we found was that we did measure plasma magnesium because we were interested in what's happening to that transient source of magnesium that's in the blood during exercise. And what we found was that magnesium fell off during exercise. And then within three hours, it was back to baseline. So we saw a transient fall in magnesium during exercise. And that that's really interesting. Where is it going? So I think it's safe to assume without taking muscle biopsies and bone that it's actually being taken up into the working muscle where it's required. And then mm. the body's able to return it to its kind of homeostatic base within a couple of hours of recovery. We didn't, we didn't control the recovery meals. So we don't know if that was replaced from consuming magnesium or the just redistribution within the body. My thoughts are that it would be a redistribution, although obviously consuming magnesium would give you a boost there. So that was one really interesting finding. And then the other thing that we found, which kind of led on from this, was that if you preload magnesium before exercise, you can actually curtail this transient fall. You can actually stabilize the magnesium blood level during exercise. You don't get this big drop. Does that matter is the next Mm. question. Don't Mm. know. I mean, the blood uh, levels did return to baseline within a few hours. So is that just a normal function? Yeah. But one thing that has really got me thinking is that if you have elite athletes that are training twice a day for example every day of the week then they're continually having this large fluctuation these declines in magnesium in the blood in the plasma so is that fluctuation daily is that maybe what's contributing to the high levels of deficiency that we see so actually what I started recommending off the back of that research was just a really high magnesium breakfast or pre-training meal not with a supplement, mm-hmm. but just dietary. And it's easy enough to get, you mm-hmm. know, just add some spinach with your eggs before, you know, have whole grains, whatever, whatever you're having pre-training, just maybe thinking about bumping up the natural sources of magnesium within that, just in case it might help stabilize that plasma magnesium level during exercise. And maybe that helps with cramping, but we're stretching here. <laughs> that research mm-hmm. has not been mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and interesting. And just to explain for listeners who might be wondering about, you know, your question, you know, where is the magnesium going? Because magnesium is a mineral, it can't be used up or destroyed per se in the way that maybe something else could in the body. So it's not like carbohydrate that's going to be metabolized and there's no longer the carbohydrate there because it's been converted to something else. It will stay as magnesium and it has to 
leave the body somehow, sweat or, or urine or whatever. So yeah, it, it's got to go somewhere, but it can move around, move back, be reused, all that kind of stuff. Just coming back to, to earlier when you're describing that first study with the athletes and then the the non-athlete controls where you were looking at the, the food frequency questionnaires and you know whether they were magnesium deficient or not. So obviously you saw that the athletes were maybe had a lower sort of magnesium status. Did they also paradoxically have a higher magnesium intake than the sedentary people just because they ate more? There were, yeah, there were no significant differences there. And both populations were consuming magnesium within the RDA, so within the recommended daily intake. Mm-hmm. So everybody was eating enough and we saw yep. lower and lower levels in the athletes. Mm, yeah, okay. Yeah, I thought maybe the athletes were eating more just because they eat more in general, but yeah. possibly because of maybe the types of foods that they add to get that extra calories and more maybe processed foods that are less likely to have or be a major source of magnesium? I don't know. I think it's probably more likely that our sample sizes were just a bit too small and Olympic athletes didn't do a weighed diet diary. They mm. just did the food frequency. Mm. I think you're absolutely yeah. right. Generally, athletes will consume more of everything because their overall caloric mm. intakes are higher. So they eat more protein and that's not because they're having loads of shakes. It's just because they have higher energy intakes and they'll, they'll eat more carbohydrate. And yeah, I, I would assume that they would eat more magnesium because it is in everything. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Cool. And did you see any differences, and you may not have had enough numbers to kind of look at these things, but differences between, say, males and females or differences with sort of ethnicity or types of sports or anything like that? Great question. So not in those studies, but by this point, I had been banging on about magnesium for two years to, within the British Athletic <laughs> Athletics medical team, and I'd finally managed to spark the interest of the doctors. So this is how we came onto the next study. So we ended up doing this eight-year retrospective analysis of all the red cell magnesium blood samples that we had taken from our Olympic and Paralympic track and field athletes across that period. So yeah, I I have been pushing the interest in magnesium and uh, yeah, they were equally interest, interested. So we then went on this big journey to do this big analysis. And that's what we um, have published a couple of years ago, which has led to some suggesting some new guidelines for athletic populations for magnesium. And within that study, that's when we really started to look at correlations across the athletic disciplines, the genders, ethnicity, and also linking it to, well, looking for correlations between um, magnesium status and injuries. Mm. Okay. And so were there any sort of key things that stood out when you did look across those sort of different subsections within that? Yeah. So we found that um, magnesium def- magnesium status was significantly lower in females compared to males. Uh, mm. We found that it was significantly lower in black and mixed race ethnicity athletes compared to white athletes, which I think is really interesting because we also find both of those correlations with vitamin D as well. And we obviously mm. know how closely linked magnesium and vitamin D are in terms of bone uh, mineral, uh, sorry, bone metabolism. Um, and also bone mineral density. So if people aren't able to measure magnesium, but are measuring vitamin D, which is much more widely measured, at least here in the UK, we could potentially make an assumption that athletes that have low vitamin D may also be more at risk of having low magnesium as well. Mm. We also found that athletes with cerebral palsy had significantly lower magnesium, which isn't something we can particularly explain, but Theoretically, muscle function is very different. There's less muscle fiber recruitment, less activity. So therefore, perhaps less magnesium stored as opposed to, you know, athletes with cerebral palsy eating less magnesium. Who found that? We found magnesium status significantly higher in our throws athletes, which I think might come back to what you were saying about just general intakes. I mean, our throws athletes are the ones that consume way more overall than other athletes, which might explain why they had higher magnesium status but certainly from a population perspective the most interesting findings were the difference between the genders so males having more than females or females being lower than males and same with the black and mixed race athletes having lower levels Mm, okay and obviously it sounds like you had quite a bit of data to look back on retrospectively which suggests that this was being tested for even before you came up with sort of a research question to test for it. So it was just part of the routine bloods that were collected, which was very fortunate, obviously, that you had that data there. Is that something that's done quite commonly in the UK? Because correct me wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, Steph, I don't really see this being tested at all here in Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm hearing actually from other international practitioners that they're not really analysing it. And since we published this study, I've been really fortunate to be able to talk to lots of people about it at conferences. And I'm really hoping that it it does spark the interest that people might start analysing it and really hammering home that it has to be red cell and that plasma magnesium is just not going to be um, insightful in terms of um, dictating status. Very interesting to look at if you want to look at the changes. So no, I don't think it has been particularly widely tested. So yes, 
an absolute blessing that we were able to analyze that. Um, one of the amazing things, another amazing thing about working with the British Athletics team is that we were based at Loughborough University um, and being part of the EIS, we had access to the EIS labs as well as the university labs. So we had quite an extensive and yeah, really well, well-controlled blood analyzing process. So mm. I was very fortunate to then be able to go back to that athlete signed consent at the time of taking those blood tests. So that was very straightforward for us that it could have been used for research and publication. So we just had to get a retrospective ethics to be able to publish that data so we had just under 200 athletes uh, providing samples across the eight years which was just under yeah oh, just over 500 samples in total mm, it's a gold mine so, of yeah. data yeah, yeah. Well, and, wouldn't and it be, there's so many questions that we, we could have asked yeah we're very lucky to mm. be able to analyze that for sure yeah 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 and do you know if that test is particularly expensive compared to other kind of pathology tests that you might do I don't know that it's more expensive, but it requires different laboratory equipment. So Mm. as you know, if you want to look at other minerals, you can often run them on the same kind of equipment and you just use different electrodes or ions or or different kind of Mm. systems within that. But essentially, it's the same technology that you're using. And that is not the case with red cell. It takes a little bit more preparation and it's different type of analysis uh, with mass spec. So, yeah, that will be more expensive and, and less readily available. Yeah, which yep. is no, that yeah, makes sense. Why it's not done? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and you mentioned before that you know some of this work had led to some sort of guidelines that you guys had put together around magnesium. Do you want to talk a little bit about that in terms of what those guidelines look like and who they might apply to? Yeah, definitely. So um, I will just bring those up because I do have baby brain at the moment so I don't have <laughs> I don't know them right off the top of my head. But yes, basically what we wanted to do was to have something that was just a little bit more helpful to a practitioner than just clinical deficiency because like with other things we analyze obviously you don't want your athletes to be clinical deficient but if you take vitamin d for example with their development or with the research that's been done in athletes and vitamin d over more recent years the guidelines are a bit more than just clinical deficiency now we have kind of suboptimal and optimal and we can be a little bit more targeted with the analysis and it's a little bit less cutthroat you know if you're one millimole over deficient then you don't need to be supplemented well that doesn't necessarily mean you're optimal so we wanted Mm. to look at it from more of that perspective so we yeah we ended up coming up with a set of guidelines um, for practitioners to use the athletes that included guidelines for optimal suboptimal insufficient and deficient I don't know is it worth me saying them now or do you want to provide no that's fine we can we can have a look but yeah I guess so the so the point is that you then use some different cutoffs using red cell magnesium for athletes to maybe consider supplementing possibly earlier than you would in the clinical population and i guess even in the clinical population because certainly as we said here it's not very well tested people probably wouldn't even know what the cutoffs for deficiency were anyway yeah absolutely Mm. i think hopefully that'll be something that's helpful and then yeah the other really interesting thing that we found when we ran all the analysis post collecting this data was the correlations we found with injuries so this was the first really to look at this and we found that athletes with lower magnesium status were more susceptible to muscle injuries. So with every additional magne- um, muscle injury, there was lower magnesium status. So we, again, knowing that magnesium is involved in so much uh, within the muscle, it's perhaps not surprising, but really, really interesting finding. So something like that just kind of adds the pressure to measure and to make sure we mm. we are correcting any deficiencies. We also found correlations with low magnesium status and tendon pain. So tendon pain, um, tendinopathy and the way that we did this was so with the muscle injury it was the number of injuries that an athlete had that year uh, with tendon pain or chronic tendon pain it was a persistent pain of more than three months was defined as a tendon pain so with the, that analysis we found significantly lower magnesium status with athletes that had reported tendon pain and yeah the reason that, that I think is so fascinating is that magnesium is actually involved in pain modulation so it's a NDN N, <laughs> NMDA so and let's try and get this right, methyl D-aspartate receptor antagonist. Um, so if we have low levels of magnesium, there is, well, basically magnesium is going to block some of that pain propagation in tendons. So if you have magnesium deficiency, you're going to be more susceptible to that, to pain in tendons. So that was a really interesting finding that actually we are kind of able to partially explain with theory as to why that might be the case. So Certainly now, if I was, if I had a limited budget, but was working with athletes and I had athletes that had history of muscle injury or with tendon pain, tendon ruptures, tendinopathy, those would be the kind of athletes that I would target for a magnesium test. Also, female athletes and athletes with black or mixed race ethnicity um, would be really high up on my radar for prioritizing for red cell magnesium analysis. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I guess it's one of those things too, we probably aren't too, like sh- 100% sure. Obviously, we'd, we'd want to test whether, you know, as you said, you know, magnesium can't be destroyed. It's going to move around or be lost from the body, or maybe you're deficient because you just have a lack of intake. Whether here, lack of intake has caused an issue, or whether the issue has caused the magnesium to then get sucked into the muscle or the tendon or whatever it is for some purpose in terms of repair and recovery and that side of things as well, which then you know, you come up with a lower red cell magnesium count because of that as well. Absolutely. And yeah, Mm. same with bone health. So in our cohort, we actually didn't find any relationship between magnesium and bone injury, which was actually probably the one that I was thinking that we we might find. But I think that's because actually within our cohort, we had relatively low bone injuries. So I think we only had seven injuries throughout that sample size that we'd taken and we didn't find any relationships there. Um, But I think that would be something that would be really fascinating to explore moving forward, just knowing the important, well, how much magnesium is stored in bone, the importance of magnesium at linking with vitamin d for bone health bone mineral density so i think that could be really interesting so again if i had an athlete that was really suffering with bone stress or bone fractures and bone breakages i would definitely look to prioritize them for a magnesium test Mm, yeah okay and and i'm not sure if you looked at this did you see a, a correlation between sort of magnesium status and then vitamin d status as well given that magnesium is involved in the activation of vitamin d we didn't. We, yeah, we, there were so many questions. And do you know what? It would be lovely to go back to that data set and really look at some of those relationships, particularly like what you mentioned. I think that would be so fascinating. We didn't really have the time and resources <laughs> mm. to, to do that, but we have got that data um, because yeah. Yeah. for every sample that was taken, that blood test would have been run at the same time. Mm. Yeah. Cool. All right. And we really need to do again, that, we? certainly here, <laughs> certainly here in Australia. I guess there's two ways that people tend to take magnesium supplements. One might be like a daily magnesium supplement, like you might take an iron supplement or vitamin D or something like that. But then there are other people that are taking magnesium specifically added to sports drinks and things. So for consumption during exercise specifically. Now, obviously we said before, you know, you do lose some magnesium through sweat, although the losses are relatively small. But can you see a rationale of of one versus the other? Are we talking more about sort of daily supplementation to prevent an overall deficiency over days, weeks, months? Or are we looking specifically at wanting to have magnesium coming into the body specifically at the time of exercise? I have to say that this is just an opinion because we we do not have the research to support this uh, at the moment. But I would say if you are going to be using magnesium as an athlete, then based on what we know about how magnesium is used or changes in the blood during exercise, I would say targeting it around sessions would be would be helpful. So as I said, what we introduced at British Athletics, particularly in the more vulnerable population, was to really encourage high magnesium breakfast. So we'd provide some ideas that would really increase the magnesium content of food choices during breakfast time and make sure they were available when we'd be travelling so that athletes could make good choices. Certainly a food first in the kind of pre-exercise meal that's high in magnesium, I think, would be really valuable and easy to do. But then, yes, if athletes are going to consider taking magnesium, like you said, adding it to a drink makes sense because maybe there is something in cramping that we just haven't really begin being able to get to the bottom of just because the etiology of cramping is insanely complex (laughs) (laughs) but as I mentioned earlier it's unlikely to do any harm it's highly unlikely to do any harm we know that magnesium is being utilized during exercise because we're seeing a fall in plasma magnesium whether that's all being sweated out not sure because like you said magnesium in sweat is actually quite low in concentration particularly compared to sodium or potassium is it being utilized in other muscle muscle function perhaps we know that bone metabolism is increased when it's under stress so bone metabolism is going to be increased during running for example is magnesium being shuffled and utilized in that regard we don't really know but if you take magnesium orally during exercise that is going to end up in the bloodstream so that does seem to make sense that that would be valuable and as I mentioned that first second study we did we did actually see that consuming a magnesium supplement I think it was one hour pre-exercise did prevent that fall but then obviously you have athletes that take it before bed because they think it helps with sleep again nothing really to support that but who am I to stop an athlete doing that if they think it works and you know the power of the placebo (laughs) Mm. cannot be ignored (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah, for for sure. And then so have you gone on to do more work? Obviously, you did that one study looking at sort of magnesium intake immediately before exercise. But have you done others to look at sort of generally magnesium supplementation and whether those people who were deficient, whether you could turn that around? And if so, 
what sort of outcomes you got from that or did you only get to sort of that observational where are they at now kind of stage? Yeah, sadly, that's been on hold, really. I have looked at magnesium in different sports since, so in football players, and I suppose with the regularity of the testing that we do, we do see corrections and deficiency. So using the the published guidelines that we put together, we would have, have a supplement plan in place, depending on whether you're kind of you know, clinically deficient or suboptimal. And we do see that that's relatively easy to correct with good dietary interventions and also magnesium supplementation. So in that regard, kind of inadvertently, we were able to track that, but that wasn't part of a research study. Yep. Okay. And I know someone's going to ask, we talked about before that there's very little evidence sort of linking magnesium and muscle cramping. And as you said, obviously, you know, how muscle cramping develops is really complicated. But do you have a a thought process to why so many people link magnesium and muscle cramping so strongly? <sighs> well, it's not from the research. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was, there was a really nice review. I think it was mm. maybe 2010 or 2013 or something that looked at all of the studies that they, that they could uncover. I think it was a Cochrane review. So as, you know, as good as it gets looking at, um, what we know and it wasn't from an athlete population because there weren't enough studies really to add in it was um kind of I think overnight cramping so generally a more elderly population and then Mm. um pregnancy cramping um Mm. and there were you know a good enough handful of studies well probably not really to be honest maybe 10 or so (laughs) I'll find the link for that paper and they they couldn't conclude anything from magnesium versus placebo. There was no, no finding, no significant impact of magnesium versus placebo on either of those types of cramping. There is a small mention of exercise-induced cramping, basically to say that there weren't enough, there wasn't enough research. There has been an update of that. I think it was 2021 um, that has just added in a couple of extra studies that have been done, but it hasn't changed the overall findings of the paper. So it's yep. definitely not coming from the literature. But, you know, athletes, sometimes they're on it before the scientists. So mm. I'm definitely not ignoring the the interest around it and the fact that people think it can help because, yeah, they can be years ahead. Yes, <laughs> and then definitely. often the scientists are, you know, really chasing to find the answers because the athletes are so profoundly stating that this works. So there, I think there's something there. You know, magnesium is complicated. As I said right at the beginning, it is involved in like over 300, you know, reactions within the body. So it's likely to be playing roles in lots of things that we are yet to understand. Yeah. Sorry, I can't answer that question any better. No, no, no that's fine. <laughs> no, no, no that, that is a good answer. In terms of the supplementation side of things, I know here in Australia we have our nutrient reference values and we have our recommended dietary intakes. I think you have RDAs, we have RDIs over here. And we also have for certain nutrients this upper level. So, you know, recommending yeah. not consuming more than a certain amount of certain nutrients and for magnesium here in australia at least the the upper level there is an upper level for magnesium it's quite high but it's also specific to supplements so they basically say that you know toxicity of magnesium through food intake is virtually impossible as you said before uh, but it is theoretically possible at least with supplementation certainly i've heard of a couple of sort of anecdotal stories of people getting sort of bad diarrhea and things like that after having bucket loads of magnesium particularly loading up on magnesium pre-exercise thinking that it's going to prevent them from cramping and that kind of thing have you come across that at all with athletes that have sort of taken heaps of magnesium and had some sort of side effect from it no I haven't you know I do wonder if if it is a bit less popular in in the UK Mm. I haven't come across athletes doing that they're more likely to do that with caffeine (laughs) yeah (laughs) or you know carbohydrate eating too much and getting GI distress rather than you know huge amounts of magnesium but also like you mentioned the population of athletes that I work with generally would be working with a performance nutritionist if it's not myself you know someone before me so perhaps that discussion or guidance would have been put in place uh, whereas a more recreational athlete might not have had access to that expertise or support but no if the side effects of acute high magnesium intake like you said will be um, gastrointestinal problems I mean it can can be fatal obviously but that's very rare the more likely side effect would be GI discomfort and very upset tummy (laughs) yes Um, but no personally I haven't come across athletes doing that yeah, and I think the, like the amount of supplements you would have to take in a short time frame would be absolutely ridiculous to cause those sorts of problems occurring. So yeah, and maybe, maybe also the other things, the other things that they're within, you know, pre-exercise supplements that you know primers or whatever people call them, they're just a concoction of everything and anything. Mm. So it 
it could be the magnesium, but it could also be a bunch of other things in there that aren't really necessary pre-exercise that would be causing those troubles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess from a, a general sort of safety point of view, I guess where I'm coming from with here is, you know, for example, with iron, we would generally never recommend someone supplements with iron until they've actually tested their iron status because you can actually essentially over supplement iron or have people that have got high iron status and supplementing them actually makes things worse rather than better it sounds like yeah. in this case with magnesium given that so many people do take magnesium without any access to testing any knowledge of whether they're actually deficient or not any knowledge whether they actually need that supplement it's probably likely and you know unless they're getting gastrointestinal problems it's likely to be harmless in the majority or if not all cases yeah that that's probably a fair assumption i mean I never really like to would, would never really like to supplement without having taken the test, but that's because I'm in a privileged position where I do, usually can test before I have to do that. Mm. But yes, like like you said, you know, iron and various other micronutrients, it's not it's not toxic generally for the general population unless you're doing something completely insane. I think the thing that we should consider though is that it is just so prevalent in food that mm. we shouldn't just assume deficiency. Mm. But having said that, we do see deficiency, so it is happening. I think if you're in one of those population groups that I previously mentioned, so females or athletes with uh, black athletes or mixed race athletes, then potentially you're at higher risk of magnesium deficiency. Maybe you have had the opportunity to have a vitamin D test. And if that was low, then, you know, we're starting to build a picture that leads towards you being at higher chance of having a deficiency in magnesium. And then taking the RDA or the RDI of magnesium every day without having tested probably wouldn't do any harm. But do remember, obviously, they will be consuming a fair amount of it in their diet anyway. Mm, yeah and i guess as, as you said like if you are going to supplement make sure you choose a supplement that's not you know 25 times the rdi or something yeah or packed with a load of other things that you don't need and then they yeah. could accumulate and become toxic without you realizing like mm, some of the mm. sleep the sleep supplements that have magnesium here also have zinc in them and that is obviously something that you wouldn't want to just keep taking and taking and taking so just bearing in mind what what's in their concoction <laughs> yes yeah yes and some minerals are competitive in terms of their absorption so yeah taking too much of one can actually lead to a deficiency in another as well yeah absolutely yeah yeah okay so just to to wrap up i guess if you had a magic wand you're back from maternity leave back into the lab and you're <laughs> going to do anything you want to do on magnesium athletes are going to open up their veins for you and give <laughs> you whatever you like what do you think are the big ticket items that we need to look at next? I'm a bit stumped on this because I feel like what I'd love to do is dive really deep into the biochemistry and tr really try and understand how it's used in sport and um, how mm. important it is for athletes. We do know that it's involved in all these processes, but I suppose, like like you said, where where is it going? How is it being used by these different systems and what is putting athletes at the greatest risk of deficiency? Is it a certain type of muscle contraction? You know, is it strength and power athletes? But then I guess that contradicts what I found earlier, which was that arthrose athletes had the highest levels of magnesium. I suppose if we could take, you know, bone and muscle biopsies and, you know, during exercise and really understand, and that would be fascinating. That's not going to happen. That's way beyond my expertise. That would be a, you know, a biochemist that would um, really need to be investigating that. I think, what I just really, really like to see is that magnesium, red cell magnesium, really starts just to be included more regularly in blood panels, mm. performance panels for athletes. Because I think if athletes are taking a lot of magnesium, like it's a, it sounds like they are, or at least the athletes you've been working with are, it just never sits that well with me that athletes are kind of blindly supplementing anything. So just mm. increasing awareness, including that into the screening panel, and then really being able to make informed decisions about how much needs to be taken. I think I'd just really like to see that. So maybe more than more than a research kind of aim but more just of a general athlete awareness and practitioner you know the more practitioners that are analyzing the more we're going to learn about it which sports are having deficiencies you know we, we just have a small snapshot from track and field and it'd be great just to widen that population yep yep absolutely all right well i might hand over to steph now and she's going to finish us off with our bonus round Awesome. So this is where our listeners get to learn a little bit more about you, Sophie. So if you could do anything other than your current career, what would it be? <laughs> well, I always wanted to be a surgeon. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, yeah, I don't think Dr. Killer is a great name for a surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't That's actually think anyone would. Name. 
<laughs> I don't think anyone would go under my knife, but I just always, I always love the idea of opening somebody up and fixing something that, you know, that you just can't see from the outside and stitching them back up and sending them on their way. I just think that's ama- absolutely amazing. Um, and I'm totally into that when I get to watch it on TV. I was going to say, yeah. yeah. but taking blood is as far as I go so don't panic everyone there's no Dr (laughs) Killer coming to get you anytime soon (laughs) my friend actually she did dietetics now she is a surgeon but her name Sophie is a little bit different to yours hers is Dr Luck so people actually (laughs) probably (laughs) like to go and see her yeah, yeah, if we worked together, I'd get no work. <laughs> She'd be <Yeah>. inundated. <laughs> I, well, I think it, I don't think I'll be doing a big career change now. But if I could start from the beginning again, I, I would consider that. <laughs> yeah, she loves it. Yeah. Um, and what about a sport you've always wanted to try, but you haven't yet had the chance? I have always wanted to try kite surfing. (laughs) Not like a a competitive sport, but I've just always really fancied trying that. And I've never had the chance, but that's probably because I don't live in Australia. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, one day I will try that and probably injure myself. (laughs) But I'd love to give that a try. (laughs) And uh, favourite motto in life? I don't really have one. I was discussing this earlier with my husband. He thinks it's no such thing as bad weather, (laughs) just bad clothes. So yeah, we are always out and about in the rain, dragging my little ones out in the rain. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best. And one of the things on your bucket list that you haven't yet done? I'd like to get my sailing license, a yacht sailing license. So one day I will do that and then I will be able to take my family out to watch the stars on a little overnighter. (laughs) That sounds good. Yeah. (laughs) And your most prized possession, which you may have in your hand right there, and why? (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I'm really, this was really tough. I, I guess, I don't know, I'm not really into stuff. And I did think, is it is it my family? And then I thought, how lame is that to say that? <laughs> but as my daughter's just walked in the room, <laughs> are you my most prized possession? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really materialistic in that regard. I do have a couple yeah. of signed books. Haile Gabriel Selassie was at my um, graduation, oh, nice. which was incredible. And he yeah. signed his book for me. So, yeah, I'd probably grab that if I, if the house was burning down and I was, you know, running out. <laughs> after, after I'd grabbed my children, my yeah. bunny rabbits, my husband, <laughs> then, yeah, probably, probably, you know, that, that's quite sentimental. But what are you laughing about? <laughs> she's got the pen in her hand. Maybe she's going to sign the book for you. Yeah, <laughs> that can become my most prized possession. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right, well, thank you so much for your time, Sophie. It's been great to chat about magnesium. As we said, this is, I think, an area that for a lot of people is a big black box with a lot of products and a lot of marketing being thrown at them. So it's really great to get a perspective on what we do know, also what we don't know about magnesium as well and how that sits in, the, I guess, the context of athletes. So thank you so much for your time and we'll let you get back to your family. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. And sorry it took so long. I think from the first time you asked, I've had two children, maybe. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> Since then, I'm not sure. <laughs> no, um, it's all good. But it's been my Worth pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And nice. uh, yeah, to anyone out there um, that's interested in magnesium, if you can get yourself a red cell magnesium test, that would be a really good place to start for sure. But yeah. That was great. Thank you very much, Sophie. Well worth the wait um, for Al and myself and, of course, the, the listeners, I'm sure. And I'm going to handball it over to Al to summarise what Sophie's told us about. Yeah, so our question today was, what's the deal with magnesium? And magnesium is obviously a mineral. It's found in a wide range of foods. I guess some of the main sources would be grain-based foods, leafy greens, spinach, and similar foods to that also nuts and legumes and seeds as well. Now, magnesium is a commonly used supplement, I would say, in various different forms, whether it's capsules, powders, or um, added to sports drinks to consume during exercise. But there's really very few high-quality studies around magnesium in athletes. 
Now, magnesium has many roles in the body. As Sophie said, over 300, it's involved as a sort of a cofactor for a lot of different enzymes and things within the body through a whole range of different functions. It's part of our bone mineral and things like that as well. It is involved with part of our the way our nervous system functions and also the way our muscles contract. And I think that's where a lot of the hype around magnesium supplementation has come from is those two terms and their links to quote-unquote magnesium deficiency. Now, there is some suggestion that magnesium intake in the general population is low and a significant proportion of the population, as high as 40% in some studies, have potentially what we call a subclinical deficiency of magnesium. So their magnesium status is low, but not to the point that it's actually causing symptoms of a deficiency. Uh, and this has been proposed to be due to a whole bunch of different factors, possibly due to increased consumption of processed foods where the magnesium has been removed during the processing. It's also believed that there has been a reduction in the magnesium content in fresh fruit and vegetables over the last century, whether that's due to different farming practices, due to changes in the amount of magnesium in the soil, and so on is, is not 100% clear. Now, Sophie and the team at UK Athletics measured red cell magnesium concentration in track and field athletes to try and get a sense if they're magnesium deficient or not. Now, this test, I did have a look. It is very difficult to get in Australia. In fact, when I looked up, the only place I could find that would do this test was a really obscure chiropractic clinic on the outskirts of Melbourne. I couldn't find it available at any of the major pathology centres. Possibly there are research labs that do it, but this is not a test that's easily accessible, at least here in Australia. I also had a look at the literature after speaking to Sophie, and there is still some controversy over whether red cell magnesium is a valid measure of magnesium status. Obviously, UK Athletics used that. The gold standard is considered an intravenous infusion of magnesium and then measuring the urine output. In other words, put a whole bunch of magnesium directly into your bloodstream. And if a lot of it comes back out in the urine, it probably means that you're not deficient because the body was just getting rid of it, didn't need it. But if it retains more than 80% of what was infused, then you're clinically magnesium deficient. But... That's not something you're going to ever see outside of research. An intravenous infusion of magnesium, depending on the volume, is going to be also an anti-doping rule violation in the context of organized sport as well. So it's very hard because the, the system that's designed to tell you whether you're magnesium deficient or not is actually banned in sport. So that's a, a really tricky one. So yeah, red blood cell magnesium is probably better than just measuring plasma or serum magnesium, which is what you can typically get in most places around the world but not necessarily as, as reliable as we think. Now, blood magnesium concentration does fluctuate during exercise. It does tend to go down and then return again post-exercise, as Sophie mentioned. And as she mentioned, we don't really know what that means or whether it's important or not. We can give magnesium immediately before or during exercise to try and prevent that from happening. And Sophie's team have done that and shown that you can do that. But again, whether that actually matters or not, whether it has any real world implication is currently unknown. It doesn't certainly seem to have any impact on performance by doing that. Now, based on her research, Sophie's estimated that about 22% of that population within UK athletics had a magnesium deficiency based on those red cell values. And the magnesium status was better in white male athletes and also those who probably eat a lot and have more muscle, which were your throwing type athletes, as opposed to your sprinters and endurance athletes who were more likely to be magnesium deficient. And black athletes and female athletes were more likely to be magnesium deficient as well, using red cells as the marker there. Now, if someone is genuinely magnesium deficient, then supplementation may well improve performance and we would say the same for something like iron deficiency but otherwise there doesn't seem to be any obvious advantage from a performance point of view to giving magnesium supplements to people whose magnesium status is already normal and that includes prevention of cramping which the evidence really doesn't suggest is beneficial certainly for exercise cramps now, there is actually a study I've found going all the way back to the early 1990s where they did give magnesium supplements to marathon runners, uh, and these marathon runners had normal magnesium status, and it made absolutely no difference to their performance in the marathon. Now, Sophie mentioned that magnesium supplementation, although possibly not necessary, is at least unlikely to be harmful if done in reasonable doses. 
And so the most common issue that you would see if you had a high dose of magnesium in the first instance would be diarrhea, just what we call osmotic load, similar to sodium bicarbonate or something like that. Um, now in Australia, the recommendation is that we have no more than 350 milligrams of magnesium a day from supplements. And just to put that into perspective, I guess one of the most popular supplements at the moment is the Pillar Performance Triple Magnesium. And the recommended dose of that is 310 milligrams of magnesium per day, which is just one, one scoop per day. Uh, the other product that's probably not as popular as it used to be, but is still certainly around here in Australia is Endura, which is a brand of sports drink that contains quite a high dose of magnesium. It actually provides 163 milligrams of magnesium per hour during exercise. So you could see you could very quickly and very easily actually exceed the recommended upper level for magnesium intake using that particular product in the, the recommended dose. So I guess that comes back to the question, should we think about magnesium like sodium as something that needs to be replaced specifically during exercise or more like a mineral like iron, which is more around day-to-day -day adequacy and the supplementation is not related to exercise per se. I think on the balance of this, I would think more kind of like iron, but that said, there's certainly no harm having it during exercise, given that that blood concentration does fall, as Sophie mentioned. But again, we just don't know whether that is of any relevance or importance or not. And I think in either case, it's hard to be sure whether it is a genuine concern, given the lack of available testing for magnesium. It's, it's impossible to know really how magnesium sufficient or deficient you are at any given time. But as Sophie said, supplementation is unlikely to be harmful if done at a reasonable amount. So putting it all together, I guess the claims that are made on supplements of magnesium around cramping, muscle recovery, performance, sleep, etc., are completely unfounded. As Sophie said, there's there's no scientific evidence to show any of those things. It's not to say that they're not true, but we just don't have the evidence yet. So the claims that it's based on science are rubbish. But again, there might be some effect there we just haven't studied yet. Um, I guess the only possible truth in there would be around correcting a deficiency. But again, we don't really have that evidence in athletes. Um, and so, yeah, overall, I'd say we don't know that much about magnesium. The claims are definitely overinflated. But that said, taking magnesium is unlikely to be harmful. The testing required to determine whether you're deficient or not is difficult or in some cases impossible to access. So if you can afford the supplements and you're happy to take it on a just-in-case basis, then it's probably okay as long as you don't take a ridiculous dose of it. Well said, Al, well said. So, yeah, hopefully that gives our listeners some insight into magnesium and, you know, we'll be watching this space to see if there is any research coming out. That's, let's get chatting about our next episode, Al, which we've also been waiting a little while for this one too. Um, so, yeah, are you able to introduce the, the question? Yeah, yep. So no B episode for this one. We struggled to think of an athlete that had a an interesting story to tell around magnesium. We had a chat to Sophie. She didn't have one either. So we thought, mm. oh, we'll, we'll just skip the B episode for this one. So going straight to episode 59A. And so our topic, as you said, is another one that we've been looking at for probably a good year or two now. But again, because of maternity leave, we've had to wait for our guest which is fine, absolutely fair enough. Uh, and our topic is, or our question is, what's the environmental impact of sports nutrition? Something that we don't often tend to give much thought to, but with all the processed foods and drinks and gels and um, just the fact that we eat a lot as athletes because we burn a lot of calories, we need to eat a lot of food, the environmental impact of nutrition in athletes is possibly going to be a lot more than it is for the general population. But We'll find out more about that with our special guest, Dr. Albert Regent Closer, who is a Spanish sports dietitian, although now based in Switzerland. And she did her PhD on this topic. And I think it's one of the few bits of research that has looked specifically at the environmental impact of sports nutrition, as opposed to the environmental impact of food and the food supply in general. So yeah, really looking forward to this one. Um, as I said, we've had this marked in our calendars or in our diaries for a really long time and great to to get here and, and do it awesome and we won't say yet but we've got a pretty cool guest for following up on on this one so we'll let you know that one soon mm. 
Uh, and just finally wrapping up, so a reminder that if you do have a question you'd like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Thank you to those who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We really do appreciate it. And if you do listen on one of these platforms and have 30 seconds when this episode finishes, we'd love it if you could leave a quick rating or review or just stop listening to me now and go for it. Um, So those that do leave a review on Apple Podcasts will go into a draw to win a copy of our ebook when it's published, plug, plug. And remember also that there is now 59 previous questions we've already answered. So if you are new to the podcast, welcome. You might like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them there going back to November 2020. If you want to be notified every time a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on. And finally, if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition issue for their training or racing and you want to get them away from you and you've heard it on the podcast, let them know that we are here and we would love to answer it for them and for you. Otherwise, as always, we will love and leave you and see you in a couple of weeks' time. Will do. See you then.